Talking Books on News Talk 106 to one of the questions I, I start waking lines with because I, okay so this man he's a doctor and he saves life and and he's really trying to to live him, his life as a good man and what defines him more like the entire life he lived so far all the times that he helped an old woman to to cross the street all the i don't know the money he gave to charity is that the definition of who he is or is the definition of who he is is lays exactly in that moment when he decides to leave this man who looks differently, who's from another origin, another nationality. And maybe this decision that the doctor is making to to commit the hit and run and to leave the person there, maybe it's just one decision, but this decision is like, you know, it's like the DNA that keeps the, the, the entire human body in one cell because this is the essence of who he really is. And I think that for me, that, that was one of the questions I wanted the reader to, to ask himself. Like, is it possible that this one decision that somebody makes in a wartime or late at night and when he drives a car is the decision that defines who he is. No one knows another person completely. There's always a blind spot. The compelling words of Israeli novelist, screenwriter and psychologist Eilet Gundark Ocean, taken from her second novel, Waking Lines, published by the Pushkin Press. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to travel to Israel, Iran and further afield and meet with some exciting writers and thinkers from the Jewish and Arab world. Israeli novelist Eilat Gundark Ocean unpacks her gripping new thriller, Waking Lines, and why Israeli fiction needs to explore the dark corners of contemporary life. And Peter Adamson from the History of Philosophy podcast unpacks the impact of Islamic philosophy and mysticism on the Western world. This is a show about fear, discrimination, insight and survival. But first, can we understand everything? I'm Peter Adamson. I'm professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy at the LMU in Munich, Germany. So I'm a professional philosopher, but I'm also a producer of a podcast called the History of Philosophy podcast, which launched several years ago in 2010 and has been looking at the entire history of philosophy without any gaps since then. Peter, really well done on the book and also on the podcast. Uh, incredibly impressive. I might just throw you in the deep end, but after all, you're a philosopher, so you're used to this type of stuff. Do you believe in the idea of perfect understanding? It's something that you do develop in the book. Uh, I guess I don't believe in that unless, yeah, I guess I don't believe in that. So I, what I believe is that you can have a kind of understanding of the questions and you can advance gradually through philosophical questions and see the merits and demerits of answers. But I don't think that we'll ever, as it were, get philosophy done and figure out all the answers to all the questions we have. 
As I was leafing through philosophy in the Islamic world, it struck me to some degree that philosophy is somewhat Eurocentric. Because when we think of some of the great philosophers, there's always the Greeks come in, uh, we throw in a few Dutch and Italian and French, the odd Brit or two. But um, we forget our brothers in the Arab Mm -hmm. Jewish world, don't we? Our brothers and sisters in the Arab and Jewish world. Yeah, not just there. I mean, the teaching of philosophy and the history of philosophy in the English-speaking world, I mean, first of all, you just said brothers and sisters. I was going to say that too. So first of all, it almost never covers female philosophers from before the 20th century. Um, So that's one complaint I would have. But another complaint I would have about the way history of philosophy is taught is that it is very Eurocentric. I mean, if you think about the figures who are standardly covered in undergraduate teaching of philosophy, you're thinking about Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Kant. I mean, basically all European men. Obviously, these are all great philosophers. But one of the things I've been trying to do in the podcast series is direct attention towards other philosophical cultures. To some extent, that was natural for me to do because my own area of research includes Islamic philosophy. So in a way, actually, I I kind of got into the podcast by thinking, well, if I start with ancient philosophy, then I'll go on to Islamic philosophy and maybe the audience will stay with me. So it was kind of a plan from the beginning to uh, cover Islamic philosophy. But something that is branched out into that I wasn't planning to do originally was Indian philosophy. I have a co-author named Janardan Ganeri, with whom I've been doing episodes on Indian philosophy since last year. So that means I've looked at European philosophy up to the Middle Ages, uh, Islamic philosophy, and Indian philosophy. And in the future, I'm going to do African philosophy with another co-author, and maybe eventually I'll do Chinese philosophy. We'll see. What does the word or discipline of Kalam mean to you? It's rational theology, isn't it? Yeah, I usually translate it as uh, rational theology or Islamic rational theology. The word kalam literally means word, uh, and the sort of full phrase is ilm al-kalam, which means knowledge of the word or science of the word. And this is just the expression they use for theology in Islamic culture. It's actually not quite clear why they do that, maybe because it's the study of the word of God or you know, God's word as in the Quran, but there's other explanations even in the medieval period about why it's called that. So an interesting question, which is actually very hotly debated among scholars of philosophy in the Islamic world, is whether we should think about theology, so kalam, as they called it, as part of the history of philosophy, or whether we should think about philosophy in opposition to kalam. This is a difficult question, because... It's an the, interesting question, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, and of course, it's a question you could ask about other cultures, too. So one of, one of the arguments that I would have for considering theology in the Islamic world to be part of the history of philosophy is that we unhesitatingly say that theology in the Christian world can be part of the history of philosophy. So just think of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas' works, at least his most famous works, are explicitly theological works, but we still teach them in philosophy class. The difference in Islamic culture is that they actually had a very sharply defined distinction, at least for the first few centuries of the tradition, between what they called falsafa, which is apparently philosophy, and so they actually get the word from the Greeks, and they take the Greek word philosophia and turn it into an Arabic word, falsafa. So there's that on the one hand, and then there's this rational theology, kalam, and authors on both sides of that divide see a contrast between the two. 
And so some people who work in this field think, well, if we're historians of philosophy, then we're only looking at what they called philosophy, philosopher. Other people like me want to have a broader approach where kalam, in other words, Islamic theology, is factored into the history of philosophy insofar as it's philosophically interesting, because we would say, well, there's arguments to be found in Kalam texts which are philosophically interesting, so the historian of philosophy should pay attention to them and not just ignore them because it's theology and not philosophy. Well, arguably, they're all in relationship. I'm just wondering, um, one of the men that you bring up, or one of the philosophers that you bring up, is Avicenna, and he, I didn't know much about him. Uh, he wrote his autobiography, which uh, was pretty controversial at the time, and he threw out a lot of interesting views. He was a polymath, a uh, Persian polymath. Did he change the way we think? Well, he certainly changed the way they thought in um, the Islamic world. So really, you could almost divide philosophy in the Islamic world into two parts, one before Avicenna and one after Avicenna, in the sense that after Avicenna, everyone's basically reacting to him the way that, let's say, in modern philosophy, once Immanuel Kant comes along, everyone has to respond to Kant. Um, or maybe in you know economic theory, after Marx, everyone has to respond to Marx and at least factor him in, even if they don't agree with him. So the same thing happens in the Islamic world with Avicenna. Actually, though, his influence goes beyond the Islamic world because his works were translated into Latin and were very influential in medieval scholastic Latin philosophy. You just mentioned also that he's a polymath, which is true. So he also works in science. He writes about mathematics. And alongside philosophy, the one area where he's very influential is medicine. So his medical works were also translated into Latin and became very influential in Christian Europe as well. Peter, you pitch up a very interesting question um, in the book. Does philosophy produce beneficial effects? Can we talk about that in relation to the mystics? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, and of course, this is another group of people who you might argue about whether they're part of the history of philosophy or not. And again, I tend to have a broad approach and am willing to say that mysticism is part of the history of philosophy, or at least it can be. I mean, if you think about whether philosophy can have beneficial effects, there's kind of a dispute between mystics and philosophers or self-styled philosophers in the Islamic world, and maybe in other cultures as well, between more rational approach, where it's thought that you can achieve happiness or perfection by managing to make yourself ethically virtuous, and also to achieve an understanding of the world. So in their case, they would think about having an intellectual grasp of God, of the created world, and how it's put together. Basically, what that means for them is understanding science, including the science of philosophical theology. Now, mystics will want to say that there's a way of accessing truth that somehow transcends reason or perhaps transcends anything that we can actually put into words. So they're more likely to resort to metaphors. Well, let me throw you um, a bit of Rumi. Don't grieve. Anything you lose comes around in another form. Is that poetry or is that philosophy? Yeah, so it's both. So Rumi is a great example. I mean, I think there's, I would say there's probably two famous uh, philosophical mystics from the Islamic world. One is Ibn Arabi, who's from Andalusia, from Islamic Spain. Uh, the other is Rumi, who you're just quoting, who is super famous. So he's a Persian poet, and you can find his works in pretty much any bookstore in translation. It's, I think, not so obvious, actually, with Rumi that he's a philosopher. I mean, you have to think hard about how the poems that he's writing relate 
to the philosophical tradition that he's responding to, but actually a lot of his ideas are similar to those of Ibn Arabi. So, for example, this idea that actually it doesn't sort of matter so much what happens in your earthly life because what you should be doing is seeking some kind of union with God, which is kind of the background to the quote you just gave us. That's something that he shares with Ibn Arabi. And again, it's you can think of him as a mystical author because the union with God that he's trying to achieve is something that transcends rational discourse. Arguably, one reason why he writes in poetry is that he's trying to evoke this idea of union through poetic metaphor. I was very interested in some of the stuff you wrote about in relation to Jewish philosophy. And you you argue that the use of Arabic was not restricted to Muslims, that Jews were also producing texts. One of them that I found very interesting, and I didn't know much about it, was the Zohar. It's um, one of the classic Kabbalistic texts. Mm-hmm. Have you read that? Yeah, sure. So the, the Zohar is a, is a classical work of um, Jewish Kabbalah. So this is kind of the analogous thing in Jewish culture to what we were just talking about with the Sufis, who are the Islamic mystics. So you have Ibn Arabi and Rumi and a whole bunch of other mystical authors in the Islamic context. And then in the Jewish context, you have Kabbalah, which is the equivalent mystical tradition. Um, there's maybe some kind of interplay between the two. So probably influence from Islamic Sufism on Kabbalah, although that's somewhat controversial. One thing, though, that I would say in general is that uh, something I was trying to do in the book and in the podcasts on which the book is based is integrate intellectual history of Judaism into the intellectual history of the Islamic world, because a lot of the great Jewish texts were produced in the Islamic culture, for example, by Maimonides, who's uh, probably the greatest uh, figure in the history of Jewish philosophy. So he was born in Islamic Spain. Uh, When the political situation got awkward for him and his family, they moved away. He eventually wound up in Cairo, so still in the Islamic world. And he wrote in Arabic as well as Hebrew, which is true of a lot of Jewish philosophers. What does the Zohar reveal to you or what do you take from it as a philosopher? Well, uh, the one thing that I'm, that I'm interested in by the Zohar or Kabbalah in general is that they're effectively using this sort of um, language of symbols, like often involving numbers or other um, technical symbolic words, to express something that to me actually looks very familiar from the history of philosophy, which is something that really derives from Neoplatonism in late ancient philosophy. So basically the idea here is that we have a first principle, which is God, who is beyond our rational grasp, as we were talking about with mysticism before. And then there's a kind of system which explains how things come forth from God in a kind of structured way. So the Neoplatonists talk about emanation. The Kabbalistic texts do this in terms of a kind of numerological scheme. But I think it's basically the same idea. So what you have is the positing of a completely transcendent first principle, and then other things descending from that principle in some kind of more or less ordered way. So what I think is interesting is that Kabbalah is often seen as like the sort of anti-philosophical, completely mystical, anti-rational tradition, but actually has a lot in common with even late Greek pagan ideas about the production of the universe from the first principle. So I think it's interesting to see how these kind of ideas flow through the tradition. And of course, they show up again in the Christian tradition too. But they're all ultimately talking about self-transformation, aren't they? Yeah, or even, I mean, you could even think that they're talking about identifying yourself with the first principle, which 
again, is something that we could point to in other cultures. So if you think about Indian philosophy, one of the things I've covered on the podcast recently is the tradition of Vedanta, and especially Advaita Vedanta, which was put forth by a philosopher named Shankara in response to the Vedic tradition. And basically what he says is that you can achieve kind of perfection or uh, of the avoidance of suffering by identifying yourself with Brahman, who's the first principle. And so something that's like an obvious thing to do that a lot of people do do is look across all these mystical traditions and say, oh, Advaita Vedanta, Kabbalistic mysticism, Sufi mysticism, Neoplatonic mysticism, these are all basically the same kind of idea. And although that's true in a way, because they're all positing a transcendent first principle and maybe arguing that we should identify ourselves with a transcendent first principle, I'm kind of more interested in the differences in terms of how the ideas are expressed, where they came from, what they were responding to. So although that kind of comparative project is interesting, I usually try to talk about each one in its own right rather than looking across the cultures and saying, oh, look, they're all mystics. I found what you wrote about the Sufis was very interesting in relation to annihilation Mm -hmm. or the idea that we kind of, I think you termed it ecstatic abandonment or something like that. It's pretty profound, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also very challenging because what they're essentially telling you to do is give up any value that you might have on anything that is particular to you. So you have to somehow destroy yourself as this idea of annihilation. You have to destroy yourself in order to achieve union with God. So it's not like, oh, here's me, I'm Peter, and there's God, and the two of us could come to some kind of agreement or see that we have some something in common. You know, he's the principle of being, and I have being, so we, have something, we share something, which is maybe what a philosopher like Aquinas or Avicenna might say. This, the Sufis and um, the Kabbalists, but more of the Sophies, I think, at least in the text that I was looking at, what they say is that you have to dissolve yourself into God so that nothing remains. And that's actually a lot more like the Indian idea that I was just describing as well. That's the whole point of Advaita Vendata. It sounds very radical, but when you actually think it through, it makes a terrific amount of sense, doesn't it? Well, it it does. uh, I mean, maybe it makes sense if you're a theist, (laughs) because you might say, well, if I believe in God, then God is the most real thing. Maybe he's even the only real thing, and everything else is only an effect of God or maybe even an illusion that God has created, although it's not quite clear what the philosophical argument would be for thinking that the world that seems to be real is actually an illusion, which is what a lot of these mystics want us to believe. But whether you're a theist or not, I think it's actually very challenging if you think about it, not so much in terms of annihilating your ego, because that's probably the way you're thinking about it, but think, for example, about the fact that you'd have to give up valuing your family members. Well, I'd look at it more in the area of attachment. Yeah, right. But attachment doesn't just mean money or my car, right? It could also mean attachment to, for example, the happiness of my children or attachment to the welfare of my parents or my neighbors. And if you'd really take this idea seriously that the Sufis are putting forward, you have to annihilate everything that is a kind of self-centered value. And that includes your own relationships to, for example, your family members, because if you're annihilated and identical with God, then you're not, you don't have any special relationship to your family anymore, right? They, of course, would probably say, that doesn't mean we're going to start being vicious or cruel 
in our everyday life. It just means that ultimately we're kind of also operating at a higher plane. But I, I still think it's a kind of radical philosophical proposal that I, in the end, would probably reject because I do think that it tends to undermine values that I think are real, for example, interpersonal relationships, like the ones I was just mentioning. Can I ask you about two other guys that I find very interesting in the book? One is Al-Ghazali. Um, you describe him as quite the sceptic. And the <laughs> other is a guy that you end the book with, uh, Mullah Sandra of Iran, who mm-hmm. seemed a very progressive thinker. Yeah, um, so they're very different thinkers, actually. Uh, for one thing, uh, Al-Ghazali is a great figure in the history of Sunni theology, and Mullah Sadra is a famous Shiite philosopher, theologian. But they're hugely important and influential still in the contemporary Islamic world. So Ghazali is still seen as a major religious authority in Sunni Islam, and Mullah Sadra is still seen as a major religious authority in Iran today. I think one difference between them is that Sadra, who's working much later, like in early modern Iran under the Safavids, he is really uh, considering himself to be heir to the philosophical traditions and to be part of that. Whereas Ghazali, who died in the early 12th century, actually he died in 1111, which is a very good date to remember, or an easy date to remember, he he really saw himself as a critic of philosophy, and in particular of Avicenna, who we mentioned earlier. He wrote a work called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, in which he tries to show that a lot of what Avicenna argues in his philosophy um, is unsustainable and is also in some cases against Islam. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and he thinks that some other aspects of Avicenna's philosophy are okay and should be kept. And this kind of sets the tone for subsequent thinkers. So what they tend to do is pick and choose from Avicenna, use some of his theories, agree with some of his ideas, and reject other ideas that he has. So it's actually a very complicated and subtle response to Avicenna. Sometimes Ghazali is just presented as like a forthright, thoroughgoing anti-philosopher, and I think that's really not true. Last question for you, Peter. The book is called Philosophy in the Islamic World. I'm just wondering, is the beauty in philosophy the gaps, the areas <laughs> that we can't really fully define, understand, comprehend? Is that not the magic and the majesty of philosophy? Yeah, I think that's right. That There's always more to figure out. So I would definitely agree with that. That kind of goes back to the first question. But I'm not, I guess I'm not promising philosophical wisdom without any gaps. I'm just promising the history of philosophy without any gaps. So what's without gaps is the history part, not the philosophy part. (laughs) And so the goal of the series is really to look at the entire history of philosophy. In other words, not just like the really big names like Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Kant, like I was saying before, but to look at other cultures, to look at the role of so-called minor thinkers, or even interesting texts where we don't even know who the author is. That happens sometimes. Um, Like I was saying before, female philosophers who also tend to get left out. So in a sense, what I'm trying to do is give a complete history of philosophy. And as we've been talking about a lot in this interview, a lot of the times what the philosophers are saying is that there are gaps and that we can't understand everything.
And that was philosopher, broadcaster and writer Peter Adamson. Philosophy in the Islamic World is published by Oxford University Press and retails for in around €28 in hardback. Well worth it, I think, for anyone who has a general interest in Islamic culture, thinking and science. Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. OK, let's stick with the theme of morality and ethics and meet with one of the leading lights of Israeli fiction, Eilat Gundar Goshen. Hello, my name is Eilat Gundar Goshen. I'm an Israeli writer. I live in Tel Aviv. Uh, I wrote two novels. The first is One Night Markovich and the second is called Waking Lions. I'm also a clinical psychologist and I worked a period of time for the Israeli civil rights movement. I will now read the first page from Waking Lions. Uh, Waking Lines tells the story of Eitan. He's an Israeli doctor. He thinks of himself as a good man. Uh, he votes for the liberal left. He's a good father. He's a doctor. He saves lives. And then one night when he drives back home from a late uh, night shift in the hospital, he accidentally hits an Eritrean illegal immigrant. And he decides to leave him there on the side of the road because he's afraid of the police. He's afraid of what might happen. And the next day, the refugee's wife knocks at his door and starts blackmailing him. That's the first uh, page of Waking Lions. He's thinking that the moon is the most beautiful he has ever seen when he hits the man. For the first moment after he hits him, he is still thinking about the moon. And then he suddenly stops, like a candle that has been blown out. He hears the door of the SUV open and knows that he's the one opening it, that he's the one getting out now. But that knowledge is connected to his body only loosely, like a tongue skimming over gums shortly after a Novocaine injection. It's all there, but different. His street, the desert gravel, and the crunching sound he hears confirms that he is walking. Somewhere behind the next step, the man he hits is waiting for him. He can't see him from here, but he's there. Another step and he's there. He slows down, tries to delay that final step after which you'll have no choice but to look at the man lying on the side of the road. If only you could freeze that step, but of course he can't, just as he can't freeze the previous moment, the exact moment he ran him down, the moment a ran, man driving an SUV ran down a man walking on the road. Only the next step will reveal whether that man is still a man or is now something else. The mere thought of the word paralyzes him, because when he takes that last step, he might discover that the man is no longer a man, but the cracked, empty shell of one. And if the man lying there is no longer a man, he cannot imagine what will become of the man standing there, shaking, unable to complete one simple step. What will become of him? Really well done on um, the book, Ayelet. It's a fascinating read. It uh, presents so many ethical questions and dilemmas to the reader and within all of that it really tests your your own moral limits and how you understand the narrative I might throw you a big wide open question to start off with if that's okay do you think that we can ever know really what our moral limits are until they're finally tested and within all of that can we ever say never, never, never When I started writing Waking Lands that was exactly the question I started writing with because I asked, okay, so you have your entire life being a good man and you think of yourself as a good man and you vote for the right people for the government and, and you, you're very politically involved. But can you really know that you're a good man until that moment happens? 
Because that's exactly what I ask myself. I ask myself, if it was me driving home late at night and I want to get back to my baby and put her to sleep, and I would run over somebody and there was nobody there, am I absolutely sure, 100% sure, that I wouldn't just leave the person there and go back to my, my safe life and my regular existence? And I don't think you can ever tell until you're exactly in that moment. Yeah, it, it got me it got me thinking in lots of different levels. And um, while I'm not married and I don't have children, I do have a, an amazing twin sister with exquisite children. And it got me thinking, what would I do to protect their lives and how far would I go? And, you know, I in within all of that, you know, the survival instinct kicks in and it is very hard to predict what we would do in any situation, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think until the moment you're finally there, you can never tell. I mean, we have this concept of who we really are, of what kind of person we are. And then we, we judge other people when we read about them in, in the newspaper, about people who commit hit and runs or people who, I don't know, betrayal on, on their partners. And we say, I'll never do that. But the thing is that un, until this moment arrives,